As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes, adult film stars, and sportsman drag racing. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Big Jed, Jared Pennington. Big Jed is at home in central Alabama. I am at home after five weeks on the road in southern Illinois with, I'm happy to report, excellent internet connection. Big Jed, how are you, my friend? Luke, I am well. I am uh, I'm very well. Thank you for asking. Um, just uh pretty excited this week um my my daddy's sweet little man uh, jj is headed to galat big week to, for jj yeah huge week man it's this i mean really a dream's coming true for him this week uh, he's gonna get to race the spring playing galat he is going to be on the microphone with steve riggins so Pretty excited. I'm going to get to do a little racing myself here at home, but uh, really way more excited for what JJ's got going on this week. Cool stuff. I don't know about you, Jed. I think back, and it's kind of silly now to, to look back on, but I remember my first trip to a racetrack, much less out of town, but a racetrack without my father was like a complete rite of passage, much <laughs> less the opportunity to go, what, eight plus hours away to one of the biggest races on the planet flying solo. That's a pretty big step. Yeah, it's a really big deal. He's, uh, he's gotten to go do a little bit of racing without me. Um, you know, it probably is the farthest away. He's been an hour and a half or so to Montgomery capital city motorsports park. Um, but he's always got people around him, you know, uh, he's got Greg Pesnail or, you know, Ben Willis watching after him, he might go down there and do some announcing for Ben or something. So I always got somebody watching him. So I'm, I'm, I feel pretty good about him going and doing it, but 
still it's uh, it's definitely uh, a rite of passage for him to to go do some of these races without his old man and certainly to be 10 hours, nine, 10 hours away from home doing it uh, for 50 granders, uh, pretty exciting stuff. So is it more like, I don't, I can only imagine that there's a variety of emotions going on in your mind. Like, is it more fear? Is it more excitement for him to, uh, to have this, this, uh, this opportunity and, and excitement to think like, little man's growing up or is it more of oh my god my little man's growing up there's a little bit of all of that right there's plenty of all of that plenty of all of that uh definitely like you know uh i mean he's obviously going to do this on his own at some point uh I'm at 17 obviously i've got a financial investment in what he's doing so you know i want to i want to see him be his best whatever that is and I feel like I need to be there for to help him be his best, but you know that's just really me being overprotective or overbearing. Reality is, he knows what to do. He he can think it through. He can do it on his own. He's been calling numbers for God knows how long, so he gets it. He knows the strategy and knows how to play it out. So he really don't need me, which is you know it's a little bit painful. Luke, I could get emotional here. I mean, it's tough. Understood. I'm going to like, I, you know, my feelings about the, the, the live feed. I'm not usually glued in. I, I'm going to, I'm going to have to check this out. I'm going to, I'm going I'm to stay tuned <laughs> literally. Yeah. I'll be watching close myself. Good stuff. We've got a tremendous show on tap here today. Welcome to those of you watching live on the sportsman drag racing podcast, Facebook page. We, we try to do this live every week. I think we've been doing that pretty much all year with, with a couple of exceptions, last week being a, a notable exception. Uh, appreciate those of you watching along live. The, the coming schedule, we're going to bounce around a little bit on days of the week. So stay tuned to the Facebook page to know when we're coming on. If you'd like to uh, join us live, obviously, we love that. It's a lot of fun to get that interaction in real time. Welcome also to those of you tuning in a little bit later in the week. Uh, on the audio version, the traditional podcast form. We appreciate you in whatever form you are consuming this content. So Jed, for the second consecutive week, we're going to be largely NHRA heavy, not a ton going on in the world of big dollar bracket racing. That's going to change in the coming weeks, going to change pretty abruptly. But for the week that was, we'll look back on not one, not two, not three, but four NHRA Lucas Oil Series divisional events spread out across the country. There were two in Las Vegas. There was one in Reynolds, Georgia. There was one in Noble, Oklahoma. And Big Ched, there's only one place to start. We kind of jokingly said a week ago, Sherman Adcock Jr. will put his perfect 2023 NHRA Division II Supergas record on the line in Reynolds, Georgia. Well, guess what? Wherever Sherm goes next for the next Division II <laughs> Supergas Lucas Oil Series event, that record will once again be put on the line because he went to Reynolds, and by God, he did it again, Big Jed. He won the damn race. He won the damn race. He's won the damn race times four. Four NHRA Division II events in the books for 2023. Four Supergas Wallies for Sherman Adcock Jr. Super impressive. You know, I did, I mentioned in last week's show that, yeah, Luke, he's off to a great start. And, you know, this week he's at his closest track, his home track, if you will. And, his honey you hole. Know, 
Yeah, it's honey hole. Yeah. And I, I said, I'm, I'm not sure that, that that's a huge advantage, but it's got to help. And sure enough, Sherm goes and does it again. Not the most impressive box score I've seen him have. And definitely not downplaying his efforts. Uh, you know, great driving, great decisions. That's one thing Sherman's very good at is recognizing what he was on the starting line and reacting accordingly at the finish line. He is uh, excellent at that. And, and his results show that, you know, it, again, his best light was a 10 in round one and he never sniffed a 10 again, the rest of the event. So again, not picking at him by any means, just saying winners find ways to win, even on the days that they're not at their best. And that's exactly what Sherman's going out and doing run after run event after event 24 and 0 in division two lucas oil competition look very very impressive undefeated on the divisional schedule this season four races four wins as you mentioned 24 and 0 overall round record which is insane it, sherman has been to one national event he didn't win it I believe he lost third round at the Gator Nationals. So his total season round record to this point in Supergas, 26 and one. And Big Jed, are you ready for this? Because I'm ready. I'm going to call it. I'm ready. Ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. It's over. (laughs) April 25th, 2023. I'm calling it. Brad Burton may say it's the curse of death. But nobody's catching Sherman Adcock Jr. He's been to five races. He's won four of them. Historically, four wins and and a little bit to go with it is enough. Like that historically wins the championship. And Sherman still has nine remaining races at which to bolster this points total. Used to the math, like 650 should win any time, any year. He's at 410, I believe, because one of the races was short-rounded. 410 just for those four races. So you figure he gets four races to go with that. He needs another 240. That's just averaging a fourth-round loss the rest of the way. And and it's not like you've got to average a fourth-round race over the course of nine races. you got to take four races out of those nine, the best four, and average a fourth-round loss. Like there's There's no scenario in which Herman Adcock Jr. doesn't do that. And, and I think it's actually, at this point, it is more a discussion of can Sherman rack up the highest points total in Supergas history? Could Sherman rack up the highest points total in sportsman history? I think that is more of a question mark at this point than whether or not he can win the world championship. It's over. <laughs> Early call, it's over. Right here on April 25th, Luke, uh, you know, obviously – there's a lot of racing left and anything can happen. But man, when you get the odds of winning the championship in your favor, April 25th, it's really, really good. It's It's been an, an amazing start and it has definitely been that for Sherman. Super happy for him. Uh, you know, he's got, as we'll talk about, he's got great teammates around him as well. Those guys all talk strategy. They talk weather they talk um, just potential impact on whatever the, the track's doing, whatever your opponent's capable of. It's a great brain trust around him. All of that stuff is playing into just phenomenal results for him. I know he's helping his teammates as much as they're helping him, but that's a solid group they got, Luke, and uh, you know, sharing that kind of information and 
you know, a racer going out in front of you or whatever, knowing, hey, you know, things slow down a couple hundreds or whatever, all that stuff so valuable. And, and Sherman's obviously using his resources well, his car included. And, um, you know, again, positioning himself for another world championship. And uh, it, it's been a little while coming. So, you know, the, the obviously the, the great part of this to me is he's making me look like a genius for picking him right. so early in the year. I uh, had no idea he would get off to this kind of start, but um, still watching close. Obviously a lot of racing left, as we said, but Sherman has a stranglehold on super gas. And I hate to say that because you're my partner and you're in super gas. Well, but, Jed, my my season to this point has been as bad as Sherman's has been good. Like, I, yeah. I think you can pretty well mark me off the list of contenders at this point. Let's well, I was just... going to say, but one last thing I was going to say is my only hope is that Sherman can pair with you at some point during a race in the near future because I know that your opponents are making amazing runs right now. So Sherman doesn't need any more help. <laughs> He makes great runs on his own. He beats everybody and everybody beats me. So you put those two together. It doesn't sound like a fair matchup. So you'd just be part of everybody. Right. <laughs> I, I just fall right in. <laughs> let's, if we were to zoom out from this slightly and let's, let's just for the sake of conversation, assume, and, and by the way, I'm giving myself credit for calling this April 25th. You called it like January 25th. So credit where credit is due. Let's assume that that Sherman continues this on and, and puts together what ultimately becomes a championship season because odds are that's going to be the case. As we've said before, it would be his third NHRA Supergas World Championship. No one's won three. So he would separate himself. And, and I think as clearly and should be regarded as the greatest Supergas driver of all time. And when you think about his three championships, assuming that this one does come to fruition, I don't have the years in front of me. I probably should have been a little bit more prepared, but it's in three very different eras of a, of a class that's changed pretty monumentally. When, when Sherman won his first championship, I believe it was in a Vega when the class was full of back half Vegas, right? Going, I don't know, 130, 140 miles an hour. The class obviously evolved to what we see today, which is all left-hand steer roadsters. Sherman's second championship, I believe late 2000s, in a left-hand steer roadster. Now the class has taken yet another turn, maybe back a little bit towards the middle where I think spurred on largely by NHRA's decision to basically give us back the 300s on the starting line. It took it to where this was a category where two, three, five years ago was, and, and to some extent still is dominated by purpose-built roadsters, you know, or purpose-built super gas cars like I have, like Sherman has, because in large part, like you had to have that car with a fair amount of power to simply have competitive reaction times at every, at every event and every facility on the tour. Now with 300s more, cars like my Vega, cars like your Nova, Jen, are, are competitive super gas cars. Like it has legitimately opened the field pretty significantly and it ushered in a, a different wrinkle, like a, in some ways, a new era of super gas for Sherman to find a way to continually think ahead of the competition, to perform at the level that he is over the course of what 30 plus years and always find the edge 
because there's always an edge, right? And it's changed. It's changed significantly in the last 10 years, much less the last 30, just a testament to who he is, who he is and what he does. All excellent points, Luke, from, from somebody that that's, you know, living the super gas world, you, you obviously get it at a very high level, but uh, didn't even take into consideration the changes that this class has seen, not only in and in uh, an olive car that is has moved around over a, a couple of two or three decades, and Sherman's still performing at this level. So, uh, very very impressive on his part. And you know, no no offense to Sherman. Uh, obviously, I, I have a high level of respect and admiration for him, but he's no puppy. Uh, Sherman has had a few birthdays and, and been doing this a long time, so. You know, the the weather and all those things, all that stuff wears on him probably a little more than your average super gas racer, just from an, in terms of age and condition. And, you know, Sherman's had a health challenge or two over the years. So um, doing what he's doing in, in this day and time of level of competition is ultra impressive and, you know, can't help but pull for him, obviously, because I picked him, but uh, I've had a, a relationship with Sherman for quite some time and have driven cars for him. So really excited for the start that that he's generated and uh, and hoping that continues for him. Agreed. Other super gas winners from the weekend. Last year's championship contender, Phil Unruh, got uh, got off to a hot start. He won the uh, the opening of the two events in Las Vegas. That's actually an event that he won a year ago, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, also went deep in the second race. The second race was ultimately won by Steve Parsons, who defeated Ed Destop, former NHRA world champion in his own right. And the other uh, Supergas event of the weekend was the Division Four race in Noble, Oklahoma, where I was, Big Jed, that saw Chet Tucker get the win over Austin Williams in the final round. As impressive as Sherman Adcock's start to the 2023 season has been, Kyle Rizzoli has been almost equally impressive, Big Jed. Riz, once again, we talked about him last week, and he's still rolling. He kicks off the double divisional in Vegas with a near double of his own, Big Jed. He gets the super stock victory over Larry Zavala, adds a stock runner up, to John McLaughlin, who, by the way, McLaughlin, winning it in a stick car, got an extra pedal over there. That's that's definitely extra points on the cool meter. Kyle Rizzoli, to this point in the season, keep in mind as we record Big Jet, it is April 25th. Kyle Rizzoli just staged in his sixth NHRA final round of 2023. I did not stutter. It is late April six NHRA finals. He's been in four stock eliminator finals. He's been in two super stock finals. We'll touch more on super stack, super stock here in just a minute. His stock season to this point, he's got the back-to-back national event victories that we talked about a week ago. He's added two runner-ups on the division scene. He is currently at 528 points through just seven events. To put that into perspective, Parker Theobald, who won stock in the second leg, the back end of the doubleheader in Las Vegas, sits second in the stock eliminator points, has had a great season to this point. He is Rizzoli's nearest contender. They have been to the same number of races. Kyle Rizzoli is more than nine rounds ahead of Parker Theobald. 
that's a strong start to the season. So the average, uh, the average race, Luke, I guess is going to, to be five, six rounds. So he's a, he's a race and a half ahead in the points. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Very impressive. 528 points through seven events. I don't know where Brad Burton was when you called it last year that it was over. But I don't think Brad had 528 through seven races. Yeah, I think he was shy. This this feels over. This is this is another super impressive start. And you know, he's really doing it in two categories. I mean, he's he's positioning himself to make a run at two different championships if he continues on the path that he's on. Just very impressive by Kyle Rizzoli. Kyle, you know, I know Kyle, again, another guy that I have a very high level of respect and admiration for. And, you know, he's told me a few times over the the years, and this has been a many year stretch that I just see how things start out. And, you know, then I decide from there how much of it I'm going to do or chase. And well, obviously now he's, flash. In he's going, <laughs> yeah, he's in a position now where he doesn't have a choice. He's got to continue going. And look, I, I mean, I don't know what he needs to average to get to to 650, but um, he's definitely going to surpass that number and give himself an unbelievably good chance to to hoist that world championship trophy. So excited for Kyle, uh, one of the good guys in the sport, just fun to be around, aggressive racer, talented, great equipment, uh, the 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 means to go travel and do what he needs to do to, to compete. So, you know, he's going to be a factor for sure. If he, if he don't lock this thing up here in the next event or two. The only reason Jed, that I don't call it for stock just yet and say it's over, obviously Rizzoli putting together a, a strong run and, and un, maybe in some ways an unprecedented run. And I do like Sherman Adcock. I think he will continue. I have little doubt that Kyle will surpass that 650 point mark. The reason that I don't call it just yet, and to be completely transparent, I hope it happens. I think I said that a week ago, like Kyle's knocked on the door of this. He's a, he's a guy that's, that's easy to root for to begin with. Plus the fact that he's, he's come close a couple of times in the past. And I feel like when you race it, at the level that Kyle does and, and compete at the level that he does, like feel like at some point you deserve to win one. Right. And I, and I think that applies to Kyle. The reason that I don't say it's over just yet is just because traditionally speaking, while super gas and, and Sherman's record is slightly better to this point. Like he's won four races out of five. Right. And it's a class that is typically maybe not quite on the level of super comp, but typically a lot of parity, right? From top to bottom, it is difficult to separate yourself for anyone, right? So when Sherman puts up somewhere between 650 and 700, maybe more, like it's possible nobody else crests 600. Stock traditionally has a half dozen or maybe two or three racers that just go berserk, right? That it's not uncommon to crest 650 and lose, Right. Or, or I shouldn't say lose, not win the championship. So I think it's very possible that Kyle Rizzoli puts up a score that is otherworldly and somebody is 
right there beside him, right? And competing to the end. So that's the only reason I say I'm, I'm hesitant, a little bit more hesitant in Stock Eliminator to call it. Maybe, perhaps, perhaps I learned my lesson from a year ago. <laughs> yeah, and I understand that. And definitely, totally understand why you wouldn't call it OVA in this category. Obviously, it's through seven events. So that's a few more events, but he's, he's averaging a little over 75 points in event. Which is, I mean, incredible through seven races really is in a category full of talent and full of opportunities to to just flat miss, you know, or, you know, have a have a 40 bulb and somebody lay you down double O and you just can't beat them. It's so easy to do in the bottom bulb categories. And he's had his share of them, I'm sure. I, I don't know his box scores uh, just by memory, but. Um, you've got to get away with a lot to uh, to continue on the path that he's continuing on. But, you know, what I've seen in this category, these guys get streaky, they get hot, and their opponents are knowing that they've got high points totals and that they're going to a lot of finals. And, you know, it gets them out of their comfort zone and they try to do things that, that are a little different from what got them there. And that turns on a lot of wind lights too. So, I would fully expect the great results that Kyle has had thus far to serve him very well in the other lane as he continues on event after event. Now, I really believe that's going to propel him to the top of the list. Now, that's a great point, Jed, and I, I feel like I've been fortunate to, enough to live that on the good side, and I think we've all been victim to it on the bad side <clears throat> at times. But when you are on the type of heater that – Sherman Adcock Jr. that Kyle Rizzoli are on, that tends to snowball simply because the whoever is staging in the other lane is, is human and realizes, ain't nobody beat this dude for two freaking months. And just whether it's a, a conscious thought or a subconscious thought, there is the, the idea has to cross your mind that you have to do something outside of the norm in order to win that round when I think the truth is anything but that, but it is very normal to think like, Hey, I've got to, I've got to stand on my head right here. Like I've got to go be Superman. And when you go try to do that, that it's just, it's so much easier to miss. Right. And, and, and so it does have a tendency to, I don't know if you'd call it force, but there are mistakes that are typically made in the other lane when you get on that kind of role. And I think that if they're not already Kyle and Sherman are, are, it's a double-edged sword, right? It can go both ways. You get opponents that swing for the fences and occasionally they'll hit, right? But by and large, I do think like there's a mental aspect of this that when you get rolling like that, it's even harder to get beat because everybody's trying so hard to do it. Yeah, and he's in a he's in an A-stock automatic car, Luke. And 10, 15 years ago, that was almost guaranteed to leave last. Uh, that's not guaranteed to leave last any longer, but it leaves last the majority of the time. And leaving last the majority of the time is another thing that's going to play into his favor and help him. You know, the, the slower cars know that he can run the dial in. They know that he's solid on the tree. And those, just, those things just work on you. And I, I think it's going to definitely lead to, to continued great results for Kyle. So looking forward to it. Can't wait to, to see how this plays out. I wish we could fast forward to October so and get a look at it. What fun would that be? None. None. We discussed Parker Theobald, who sits second in the Stock Eliminator National Point standings behind one Kyle Rizzoli. Speaking of the Theobalds, 
who I know you're partial to, Big Jim. Tanner Theobald, the super comp front runner we discussed last week. Big Jed, Tanner keeps doing it. And honestly, he's doing it the hard way. He is he is separating himself from the field and super comp, but with the exception of his national event victory in Las Vegas two weeks ago, he's just doing yeoman's work here. He has not advanced to another final round this season, but in seven events, seven events to this point, the same seven events that Kyle Rizzoli has been to, Tanner Theobald has failed to stage for round four once, and that was a round three loss. So one final, one round three loss, and a whole bunch of races where he's going four, five, six rounds, just racking up points, not necessarily winning the race, but in super comp, especially, it is so difficult to get down to eight, five, four, three cars time after time after time. And that's exactly what Tanner Theobald has done to this point. Last week, case in point, Jed, the doubleheader in Las Vegas, he lost in round four of race one with a 19,000th package, by the way, which is pretty salty on the long track and super comp in Las Vegas. It didn't hold up on that particular run. In race number two, he advanced to round five. He just keeps racking up these 60, 70, 80 point scores. And when you got six or seven of them, Big Jed, that's difficult to overcome. That's ultimately the average that you're looking for. Typically, more traditionally, racers get there by getting three 105s and a couple of 60s that average out to 80. But Tanner's just racking it up race after race after race and beginning to really separate himself in, in Supercom. No doubt about it, Luke. Uh, you know, sitting here looking at this and hearing you talk about it, I'm not sure we've seen a guy that positioned himself this well without a win or, you know, a, a, maybe even a couple of final round losses or something along those lines. But obviously Tanner's just turning on a lot of wind lights, coming up a little short, but – that's even a guy that I would be more afraid of that he's doing this and hasn't even got on his heater yet in terms of wins. If he ever breaks through and gets that semi win or maybe even a big final win, uh, obviously it's going to add points, but it's going to add confidence too. And, you know, these, these guys, these Theobalds, all of them look great. And now they're going to race good too. No, not a guy I want to see over there at all. From, from Tanner's perspective, I'd imagine, now again, he did get the national event win in Vegas. That's huge. But I would imagine there's a, at least on some level, a sense of frustration. Like you knock at the door that many times, like you expect to, to win more than one. But if he zooms out from that just a little bit, like right now in the moment, there could be a sense of frustration. Three, four months from now, when all the other racers get this, these level, the same number of races under his, under their belts. Tanner's going to sit back and go, man, I'm in pretty good shape because he's going to be in pretty good shape. Uh, I mean, there's work yet to be done to be certain, but they, what he's compiled to this point and over the breadth of races that he has, like Tanner Theobald is certainly the front runner in Supercomp moving forward. Yeah, and, you know, obviously the, the season really winding up, ending up, and all the points battles wrapping up in Tanner's I hate to call it his area of the country because he's from Utah and 
Utah is not really next door to all of these races, but if it's on the West coast. Do you you have an area of the country that you can claim? (laughs) I'm not real sure. Not real sure what mountain you can claim, but nonetheless, it's on the West coast, which is, uh, you know, playing into a much easier area for him to navigate. And I'm sure he will. So, you know, he's probably putting up a nice points total, uh, that's going to leave him some options towards the end of the year and be ready to, to wrap this battle up in style. So I know Tanner will be a factor later on in the year. That's going to be super fun to watch. Without question, Supercomp winners throughout the weekend, that double divisional in Vegas started with one Chris Whitfield, who continues to make us look good, Big Jed, because we said Chris was good before anybody realized it outside of Denver. And he just keeps proving that over and over and over on any stage. He won Supercomp in the first event at Las Vegas with the win over Bo Butner in a little spring fling million final round rematch big jet and it lived up to it like i think i want to say bo was trip zip and a few thou under and chris was low double o and dropped to high dead on or low one above like it was the it was the numbers you would expect to see from that pairing this time the the roles get reversed chris whitfield gets to hoist the trophy at day's end uh in race two it was trey vetter who you remember we talked a little bit about a week ago trey had a big week himself coming off of the super stock runner up at the wheel of justin lamb's cobalt in the national event a week prior trey drives the more familiar long skinny machine to super comp victory in race two got the win over toby Payne. toby by the way nice start to the season if you remember he was a winner at the divisional event in Phoenix earlier in the year. So uh, not quite Tanner Theobald numbers just yet for Toby, but two finals, a couple late round appearances. Toby Payne is in good shape points wise as well. One other thing of note from Las Vegas, Big Jed, talked about Whitfield over Butner in the final of race one. Bo Butner, you know, pro stock Bo Butner, competition eliminator world champion Bo Butner, super stock. Like if you could list the classes that you would, um associate with the name Bo Butner. Supercomp is way down the list. They ain't done that much. He went to Vegas, one of the uh the most difficult places to race, one of the most talented fields in the country, one of the largest fields for a double divisional. Runners up race one, semifinals, race two. Bo knows Supercomp, apparently. Well, Bo's obviously comfortable in any setting, apparently. Uh, You know, it doesn't really matter. If he's behind the wheel, he's in his comfort zone. Obviously, you just mentioned former spring playing million-dollar race winner um, and the rematch there with Chris Whitfield. I'm I'm sure Chris would trade that. He would like to flip-flop that. Um, Oh, man, Chris, it's all about the Wally, baby. Yeah, no, it it is all about the Wally when you're racing for one. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But – you know, Bo winning a million, winning Super Gas, I think his first time out last year, if I remember correctly, uh, just just jumped in that new car and or maybe new to him anyway, but got the win in his first race and continued to do well, then comes out here in Super Comp. I mean, you just can't deny it. The guy's very, very talented and very comfortable if he's behind the wheel of a race car and and capable of getting it done. I would like to see Bo jump in Randy Lynn's car and show us how to do it on the bottom. I would like him to go ahead and and do some just so I can see exactly everything Bo has to offer behind the wheel. But 
you know, if he doesn't do that at all, he still uh, got my attention with his talent. Uh, guys capable of winning anytime, anywhere. I, I could be misinformed here. I, I'm, I'm kind of completing a sentence here completely on my own. I don't think Bo's lack of driving Randy Lynn's stalker has anything to do with a, a lack of talent or perhaps even a lack of desire. I don't think anybody gets to drive Randy Lynn stalker, but Randy Lynn. <laughs> well, I can't blame her for that. It's awesome. And, uh, and it's her car. So she gets to make the rules and I wouldn't want anybody driving it either. And she drives it pretty darn well she herself. Does. So she really no does. point in anybody else getting in it. That she does. Uh, other 890 results from the weekend. Mike Green was your winner in Noble over Trinae Crisoni. Hugh makes the third, Big Jed. Reynolds winner over Kyle Anderson. Obviously, Hugh Meeks, teammate to one Sherman Adcock Jr. And for the heater that Sherman has been on, they have done this double winter circle thing more than once this season as well. Yeah, Julio, you know, a guy that took quite a few years off raising his daughters and doing the family thing is has gotten back behind the wheel the last couple of two or three years with some regularity, uh, seemingly going to more and more of these events and turning on more and more win lights. Guy, he was, uh, you know, he's a former Superstock world champion. He is very capable in a long car or one with the doors. Uh, a guy that competed on the bottom in Stock Eliminator very, very well in his time when he had stockers back in the day. So, you know, no surprise here, but still a surprise a little bit just because of how talented the fields are and how difficult it is to turn on that final win light over a couple of two or three days at these events. Uh, got the win over Kyle Anderson. Love the Anderson family. They're heavy in NHRA right now doing their thing. Really happy to see uh, Kyle get some great results there in Reynolds and get to a final with Hugh. And, you know, Hugh quietly putting himself in position that if, you know, it all worked out and he continued doing what he's doing. He'll be a factor in that championship chase. He's putting up some really strong results and uh, has had pretty good run in super stock category as well. So Hugh showing, uh, showing some versatility there between pro tree and bottom bulb racing. It's going to be a hard act to follow big Jed because the 2022, the conclusion to the Lucas Oil Series in 2022 was incredible. Like probably the most dramatic season's end we've ever had between Bob Locke and, and that unbelievable story. The the top sportsman world championship coming down to what the semifinal round at Pomona, uh, Burton and Hidalgo going back to back, head to head, trading haymakers and stock eliminator. But I, with all of that said, Maybe not necessarily on the final weekend of the season, but for the final months of the season, I think it's fair to say that Superstock provided the, the best storylines for the longest period of time, right? It was it was Pete Dagnolo uh, trying to win his first opposite Greg Stanfield, trying to win, what, his fifth? And, and oh, by the way, in the mix, you've got Ryan McClanahan, former NHRA world champion. You've got Wyatt Wagner, probably future NHRA world champion, right? All of them just winning on, from coast to coast, seemingly every other weekend, just trading haymakers for months, right? And you never knew who was going to come out on top. Superstock was fun. Superstock, Big Jed, 
the, the table is getting, getting set. Superstock's going to be fun once again. We talked about the start that Kyle Rizzoli is having to his season, uh, predominantly in Stock Eliminator, but he just notched his second Superstock final with his win in Las Vegas. He's putting together a great season there as well. Kevin Helms, who we haven't talked about in a couple of weeks, but we talked about a lot early in the season. Oh, ho-hum. Kevin Helms rolled into Reynolds, Georgia, and oh, ho-hum, made another Superstock final, Big Jed. He lost this one to Tyler Kahili. Kudos to Tyler, by the way. Tyler won Superstock, runnered up in top sportsman. Now, he didn't quite pull off the double, but I'm not sure that's a double that's ever been done. I don't see too many people race top sportsman and Superstock, right? That's, that's two Great pretty point. unique vehicles and two pretty unique skill sets to drive them. So kudos to Tyler on that near double. Back to Kevin Helms, in five events that he has attended thus far this season in Superstock, he has one win, he has two runner-ups, he has one semifinal. Again, he's only been to five races, so and he's obviously got a championship pedigree, four-time NHRA world champion in his own right. Add that to what Rizzoli's done, add that to Brad Burton, who we talked about a week ago. He started this season in Superstock like he started last weekend in Stock. He had a quiet weekend in Las Vegas, but Burton has still been to three finals in just six events. Those are the front runners to this point. Oh, by the way, your reigning national champion, Pete Dagnolo, he won the first race he went to this season too. He won the Cater Nationals. He he's If he's listening to this, and I doubt that Pete Dagnolo listens to this, but if he is, he's like, hold, hold on just a second. Like, I'm not, I'm not ready to, to relinquish that crown just yet. I am batting a thousand. I'm just telling you the table's set, Big Jed. Superstock is going to be fun once again. Definitely looks like it's going to be a blast. Uh, you know, some new faces in there as well. So that's a good, good time, good thing to watch. I would imagine some of the players that you mentioned that's not currently in the mix will put themselves in the mix. So, you know, definitely going to be a bloodbath in the Superstock category. Uh, you know, Helms, Kahili, talking about some guys that that have a lot of talent that's just been missing from the scene a little bit the last several years, putting themselves back in position. Pete Diagnolo, probably not listening, Luke. I did watch him run round number two or three, I think, at the warm-up race at Galat. Uh, oh, so he's, he, he's out there hitting the top. and uh, catch it on the and, way home. At Galat, yeah. So uh, he's off to a great start, you know, not putting up a bunch of bunch of race wins yet, but hasn't given himself the opportunity to do that. So got the season win at the, at the Gators. So definitely uh, a, always a fun category to watch, always a category where there's a late run by someone and, you know, somebody makes a long trip across the country chasing the dream. So obviously going to be a blast to watch the Superstock category play out uh, towards the middle and the end of the year and always looking forward to that. And just keep in mind as a, as a refresher, I mean, there's been a lot of racing that's taken place to this point in the season, but it's April 25th. So in all categories, there are racers who will likely contend for national championships that perhaps haven't even staged for a single round of competition yet. I mean, you think about uh, Superstock Eliminator as, as the example, because we just talked about it. I know Jackie Alley was just in Vegas last weekend. That was her first race. I don't think Ricky Decker is staged anywhere. He's one that's predominantly you know, in the top 10. Like The schedule hasn't even really come into view yet. 
for some of the northern racers. So obviously a lot of work to be done. I just think the table set and Superstock, especially a lot of names that we recognize having early success that uh, that should end up duking this thing out late in the season. A few other notes from a, a big NHRA weekend, Jed. Bradley Johnson pairs a divisional win with his national event semi in top dragster. Um, he could be a name to watch in that category, certainly uh, a driver with experience and uh, and has been part of that championship battle. We remember that incredible run that he went on in 2020 to almost unseat our man, A.B., Anthony Bertozzi, and that top dragster world championship, Bradley Johnson, off to a hot start. Chucky Weir, Big Jed, my main man, Chucky. Chucky, took, Chucky dominated NHRA Division Four Super Street for several years. I think that's a fair term to use dominate. And then he took some time away, went bracket racing over the 1090 stuff, jumped back in this year. So far, there have been three division four super street events. Chucky has been to two finals runner up in Belrose, a win last week in noble Oklahoma. Thought that was worth noting. Speaking of noble Oklahoma, big Jed, your boy, Brad Plord, who resides in what state? Alabama, Holly Pond, Alabama. Holly Pond, Alabama. Yeah. Stock eliminator winner in Noble, Oklahoma, and very nearly, Big Jed, very nearly a double up winner in Noble, Oklahoma. He drove that wild, crazy, blown buggy to the semifinals in competition eliminator before falling to Roger Brogdon. Ended up getting the win in stock eliminator over. Jerry Emmons, he prevented an Emmons double, Big Jed. Speedy Emmons won Superstock. Jerry Emmons runners up to Plord in the stock final. And actually, it could have been even better than that for the Emmons family, was it not for one Brad Plord at five cars remaining in stock eliminator. Brad knocks off Speedy Emmons to earn the buy in the final, preventing an all Emmons final, and then doesn't let him get the Wally at all. Plord rolls through both of them to win stock eliminator. Yeah, obviously, uh, bad Brad chasing something there, Luke. You don't you don't ride from Holly Pond, Alabama, to Noble, Oklahoma in April to try to get a divisional. That's that roof uh, tech money, dog. That's that roof tech. That that comp eliminator car was the draw there. So he hauled the stalker out, met the wheelbarrow there in Noble, and was clicking along very very well, but had a transmission issue in the semi and hurt his opportunity to, to get by Roger Brogdon. Roger made a, a really, really good run, so he was going to be a challenge either way. But definitely, you know, Brad is the, is the type of competitor that would have gave him all he wanted and was not able to do that due to that transmission failure. So uh, really solid semifinal finish for him there in the comp car, chasing that big, huge payday from Roof Tech and Roger Brogdon for the Division Four Championship. But getting the stock win in that sea of sharks, holy cow. And having to race two Emmons guys uh, between the last couple of rounds, that's the gauntlet as well. Great job by Brad Brad. Very impressive by him to go out there and get that win in the stocker, um, which, you know, certainly the disappointment in comp, I'm sure in the semis there, it, it paid off for that stocker win. So, Great job by Brad. It's a long ride from Holly Pond to Noble. And uh, that that company that he had on the way back, I'm sure, made the trip worth it. Ooh, that roof tech money, Big Jed. I, I, let me just say, 
because I, I got to witness it in person for the second time this year. Competition eliminator in D4 is badass. And that's all courtesy of Roger Brogdon and what, what he's built there. I, I talked to a couple of people over the weekend. I think, I think Will Carroll said it best. He's like, man, I don't know why Roger's doing this, but damn, it's cool. Like it, it is, it, you, we're in the middle of a, a cow pasture in, in Oklahoma, like nothing against Thunder Valley Raceway Park. I, I've raced there all my life. I, I like the place. I think I'm one of the few, right? Like it's not a, it's not a national event facility by any means, right? They're struggling to get 30, 40 cars in any category. There's 30 competition eliminator cars there and 30 of the best competition eliminator cars in the country. And just round by round, it's, it's not uncommon to go to an NHRA event anywhere, see a relatively light competition eliminator field and pencil in Bruno Massel or years ago, David Rampey or Frankie Aragona or whoever, like somebody's got the fastest car here, they're going to win. I'm telling you, Noble Oklahoma, you look through that field and you could tell me any one of 20 racers win comp and I wouldn't bat an eye. Like it is that competitive top to bottom and that roof tech money, Big Jed. <laughs> it, it, it didn't go anywhere last week. You talked about Brad Floyd losing to Roger Brogdon. Everybody lost to Roger Brogdon. Roger <laughs> Brogdon put up that money and he put that money right back in his pocket. Yeah, Roger got the win over Sean Dodd. And Luke, to just to validate what you just said about the field and how awesome the field was in Noble or any of these Division Four races, um, Roger was the number 15 qualifier. At 586 under, he was number 15. He was middle of the pack. And then you got Sean Dodd that's 615 under. And for those of you that don't understand comp, that those numbers don't make a bit of sense and never will. So don't even try. But let me tell you, 615 under is number one qualifier most everywhere. And this dude was number eight in the field. So well, this was a about, very fast field. Think about it from what you just said, Big Jed. Sean Dodd, 61 under. Roger Brogdon, 58 under. That's three hundredths of a second difference. They were eight and 15 qualifiers. There's seven cars packed in those three hundredths. Like that's, yeah. that's comp in division four. And to that end, it brings about, like, I'm not going to say that the driver is not typically important in competition eliminator. Like, it, it, there's it's two ends to the racetrack you've got to have a fast car to be competitive and obviously you, cutting a light helps when it gets that much parity it puts much much more emphasis on the driver doing everything right at both ends of the racetrack because ultimately competition eliminator is a is a very expensive form of bracket racing right like you, you can't necessarily break out and lose the round but you can break out and cost yourself the opportunity to win future rounds and in turn cost yourself a lot of money because picking up that couple of hundreds that you lost due to the cic penalty there's dollar figures attached to that like significant dollar figures to keep going faster in competition eliminator so the 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 driving and particularly the reaction time importance gets magnified as the field gets stronger and that was showcased here and roger brogdon big jed not one that's typically known as one of the standout drivers in the category dude put on a show five rounds of competition eliminator he did go red in the final behind sean dodd's red right but prior to that best light 18 worst light 39 
letting go in a pro stock car with an automatic. Like that's a spot <laughs> that don't exist, Big Jed. Yeah, that's hitting the bottom uh, way after it comes on. You know, I don't know what a what a seven flat door car has 60 foot wise, Luke, but I would say it has to be sub one second or 101, 102, somewhere in the real high 90s or low, low, low ones. Uh, that is freaking rocketing off of the starting line. And this guy's hitting the bottom with that kind of consistency. That's freaking amazing. Uh, Roger, obviously one of the one of the most talented guys in in any time he's staging because he's done it in pro stock. He's done it in comp eliminator. But doing that on the bottom, that's very, very impressive. It was equally impressive for Sean Dodd. If not more impressive, he did have a miss in round one, but he went way above the dial. So it makes me think maybe something was going on there with his opponent. Yep. But it looked like when he had to race, Luke, he was 10, 14, and 12 until he lit it up negative 16 in the final. That is killing it. Now you're talking about an eight-second door car instead of a seven-second, but still rocketing off the starting line. Still a, a car that's probably having a, you know, a high 160 foot 110 at worst and hitting the bottom with, with those kind of results. Very impressive by Sean Dodd as well. And I realize, like mechanically, I assume there's a lot that they can do to slow down reaction time. I mean, keep in mind, these things are on kill. Like you, you're not it's not like you just chip it down, dog. Like you got to You got to let it eat. But I'm sure between long throw buttons and 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 trick valve bodies, like you can slow them down some. Dude, Roger Brogdon went seven, went six ninety six first round. Okay, I don't care what you do, he's got to let it get good and warm. He ain't he ain't letting go on the flash, Jed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's definitely got to see it. Uh, you know, I you would need I'd need a tinted shield. I hit it late. I'm slow, but I'd need a tinted shield and maybe just a little bit of cardboard between me and that third bulb to, to try to figure out how to hit it. So very impressive. You go the old, uh, the Mark Seymour and get the, get the fish tank. You ever heard that story? I have not. Okay. So the, the there's, there's lots of wives tales about one Mark Seymour and maybe, maybe we could get Mark or, or someone that was around him on just to, to, to separate like myth from reality. Knowing Mark, all of this stuff might be true, but I've heard a story like, I think there was a time maybe in NHRA Division Three, maybe like a year where delay boxes had come out, but they they got outlawed. So everybody had to leave off the bottom. And and Mark had had used a delay box and realized like he could win in anything, right? And still can to that to that point. But he realized how much better he was with the delay box. He's like, man, how can I do that without the delay box? So I've heard a story of like he had a 10,000 foot spool of of wire thinking that if he had the electricity had to go that far, it would slow it down some, right? Like had it literally, I don't know how many pounds that is in the passenger seat of his Camaro. And it, it wasn't quite enough. So, so he showed up and it was actually, it was, um, it was uh, Mike Ledford that told me the story. Said Seymour shows up at, at mid Michigan motorplex with like a fish tank in front of him, the full of water. The idea being that it's going to slow down the light coming through the water to slow down his reaction time. And, and apparently it worked. But Papa Ledford was like, dude, you can't. No, 
you can't you can't do that you can't have 10 gallons of water between you and the windshield no but yeah so that's so i don't think roger brogdon's doing that per se but he's doing something pretty impressive very impressive and uh just the thought process for Seymour there to, to try to figure out how to get oh, yeah. some delay, some natural delay. That's uh, very impressive. Good stuff. All right. So, uh, one thing that I did want to touch on as we kind of step back from the, the NHRA weekend that was, was something I, I'm going to be way unpopular here, actually giving any credit to anyone involved with NHRA, because I know that's as racers, that's not what we do. But I do think kudos are in line to all of those NHRA Lucas Oil Series divisional teams. The doubleheader in Vegas had 600 plus cars in both events. And I don't know, Jed, like you haven't done much NHRA stuff in several years. The doubleheaders tend to turn into marathons. I mean, you just think that's a lot to get done in, in four days time, right? Give everybody a couple of time trials, get everybody qualified, complete two complete races, even if the weather's excellent, like it's a lot to cram into to three and a half, four days. Las Vegas ran the last pair of cars down the track at 5.30 Sunday afternoon. Kudos to them. Like that, that's a lot. And I'll just say from personal experience, kudos to the Division Four team in Noble. Um, had a tough forecast. I mean, obviously the, the freaking bleachers nearly blew away. But even after that, right, The it, it got cold. It was supposed to rain. They did a very good job of proactively altering the schedule, in my opinion, to said said very early on, like, hey, we're going to get all of this done Saturday because it's supposed to rain Sunday. And then I feel like being proactive is one thing. But then usually I think all of us are guilty of this big Jed, like you you make you feel like you've got this vision, right? And you're going to be proactive and you make a change. And then I think it's very easy to lock into that change. Well, not only were they proactive, they were flexible because a day into that, the forecast changed and it got really cold Saturday. I said, you know what? We're going to stop. The forecast for tomorrow looks good now. We'll just finish Sunday morning. Like every step of the way, I thought it was tremendous uh, forward thinking, which is not typically something that we've become accustomed to with NHRA. So I just thought, give credit where credit is due. thought it was a good job all the way around. Yeah, great recognition of their efforts and and the results, Luke. Um, you know, Vegas. 600 cars in both races and this is not like a bracket race where you've got options to combine this or that or take away a buyback the race is the race and it it typically needs to get done and move on to the next one so knowing that you you don't have options that you've got to process all of those cars and then effectively putting a plan together and doing it that's impressive um i'm not sure how many of the Vegas workers are common between uh, a fling event and and the NHRA event, but you know, you people are worn down, worn out, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you throw in basically twelve hundred more cars at them the very next week. Uh, impressive job by all the folks that that were holdovers from the fling and and all they dealt with with re- with record crowds. So uh, that is impressive, and it deserves kudos uh, as you mentioned and. Of course, the D4, you know, the D4 group there at Noble, that uh, everything they dealt with from not even knowing if they were going to get to race to dealing with some very challenging weather that was left behind after the tornado turned the bleachers over and, you know, solid crowds and making it all work and doing it in a, in a very reasonable time frame, impressive as well. So. I'm with you there. Uh, double thumbs up from the, the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. 
We've got some big dollar bracket racing action on the horizon, and I want to touch on it. But before we do, one last NHRA tidbit that I think dominated the news um, toward the, the latter part of last week, and that is that the uh, the rumored demise of the fabled Bandemir Speedway is not just a rumor, Big Jed. We're going to finish out this season, and Denver is done. That facility joins a growing list over what the last two, three years of former NHRA national event facilities that are closing the doors for good. Obviously, Memphis International Raceway, Atlanta, Houston, now Denver, perhaps Phoenix. Like there's been rumors on both sides of that, but uh, it seems like eventually the end there might be inevitable. I don't know if that's going to be sooner or later, sooner or later. That's a lot of quality racetracks closing the doors for good. My question for you is, is this a, a confluence, if you will, of unique circumstances of, at each independent facility coming together at the same time? Is it more of that or is it more of an alarming trend that we're going to fight for years to come as these premier facilities go away? Uh, look at English town of the list, obviously not in a, in a, a Mecca like the cities that you listed, but a, a legendary drag strip on the NHRA trail for decades or multiple decades anyway. So um, as much as, as the optimistic side of me wants to say, oh, it's just unique circumstances and you know we should be fine, it's definitely a trend. Um, now, Denver, my understanding is the, the Bandemir family wants to to maybe relocate and do something different and i hope that happens but you know racetracks are a lot of work they're financial responsibility they sit idle a lot especially in these major cities and don't generate revenue all the time and then you get some large developer that's willing to pay out the roof for your property and uh you know you you get out of having to sell a racetrack you just sell some land and move on um that to a lot of people seems like the easy way out but reality is it's pretty smart it really is so these these people have you know they've got millions of dollars worth of real estate sitting under them that is a ton to maintain and you know they're ready to to move forward in life again the bandemir family seems like they want to do something and continue in the sport. So I'm hoping that happens, but it definitely is an alarming trend, Luke. I don't know what's next, but I have heard rumblings that Chicago, you know, Joliet at some point would, would fall victim to this same fate. Um, lots of racetracks close every year and a lot of them hang on by the skin of their teeth, but uh, these Mecca areas, these huge, hugely populated areas where the, the real estate is worth so much. I feel like we're going to continue to see this. And it's a real shame. You know, it's impacting the NHRA tour, but hopefully in terms of what we love in sportsman drag racing, you know, we will continue to find places to, to do what we love to do and, and won't suffer. But ultimately everybody is suffering. You know, I know what Atlanta meant to a lot of people, Houston meant to a lot of people. Denver's a, a legendary facility. Uh, certainly Memphis, you know, you and I have done quite a bit of racing there. That that was a great facility for us. So 
we're all falling victim to it, but you know, it's so hard to, to lay blame on the owners of these facilities for what they're doing. It, it just, it seems like at some point it just becomes all, all about business and they're making good business decisions, maybe bad for racing, but good for business. No, I'm, I'm obviously, I've never owned a racetrack, so I won't pretend to know the ins and outs. Actually, I will pretend because that's kind of what we do here. It does seem like there is a common thread, at least from the outside on these facilities, in that they were all built near thriving metropolitan areas. And obviously, you don't build a racetrack in the city, right? You build a racetrack on the outskirts. But any growing, thriving metropolis is going to expand, right? And as the city expands, it, it gets closer and closer to the facility, which makes the land that the facility resides on more worth more money, right? Simple way of putting it. And as the, the, the quote unquote problem becomes and continues to become that these facilities are worth more as something other than a racetrack than they could ever be worth as a racetrack, right? And it, and it, regardless of how committed you are to the sport, as a business owner, like there comes a time where the the benefits just are, are too strong to pass up. And then that's my at least understanding of what's happened in, in many, if not all of these situations. That said, is it an alarming trend going forward? Well, in some instances, it could be. Do you know what's not closing down are like the mega facilities, the, the facilities that have more than one racing venue, your Las Vegas's, your Bristol's, your on down the line, right? Because I think partially due to the, the income generated by multiple facilities, but also partially due to the fact that like, I don't know that adding that much acreage necessarily makes the land value go up exponentially, right? Like at some point, the, the benefits don't outweigh the, the, the cost, so to speak. So I think by and large, I, like I'd be surprised if those facilities went away. And there's a, that between the, the mega facilities, which are, if we're going to be honest, like mostly owned by Bruton Smith and the facilities that are owned by NHRA, like it's, I think it's fair to say that like half of the national event tour is safe, probably for, for a, a relatively large amount of time. For the other facilities, and again, I don't know the inner workings of the, the finances necessarily, and I don't really completely understand the, the benefits of even hosting a, a national event, right? Like obviously there is significant financial gains or your Las Vegas Motor Speedways wouldn't do it. At the same time, you routinely see like it was Virginia Motorsports Park that basically opted out of having their national event. My understanding was that for this, the final year at Houston, they had the opportunity and said, nah, I, I don't think we want the national event. So my, my, my take on that, and again, this could be completely wrong because I'm speculating, is that while there is tremendous potential in hosting an event like that financially, there must also be a fair amount of risk. Like it's got to take on a, a pretty good undertaking to do it. And if things don't go right, if you don't have a massive crowd, if you have bad weather, like there is a potential to, to not come out good, right? And, and obviously for some of those smaller tracks, the, the risks out, outweigh the rewards. Um, 
I guess you put all of that together. And again, that's, that's sort of a, 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 a micro piece of, of what these tracks are dealing with when we, when we talk about, you know, sustainability long-term. But for me, I would say that the, the alarming trend is not so much the fact that these facilities are becoming worth more as a, as a non-racetrack than they are a racetrack. I think the more alarming trend is the fact that it's, I think, more difficult by the day to justify building a new Bandemir, Memphis, Atlanta. Like you don't see those tracks popping up. Um, that I think is probably more of a concern or, or as much of a concern as the ones that we see shutting down. Very good point, Luke. Uh, you know, the, the cost of building anything these days is, is through the roof in comparison to, to what we've seen five, 10 plus years ago. So, um, that's definitely a challenge. Uh, land values are at an all time high. So finding enough property to, to build a national event style facility in a, in an area that people can get to is a challenge. So yeah, the, the challenges seemingly far outweigh the rewards. And, you know, let's, let's say, uh, let's say, uh, Atlanta or Houston generates three or $400,000 of net profit per year. And somebody comes in and offers you 20 years of net profits for your facility. Um, it's hard to say no to, uh, and, and that, that may even be a bigger number than that. So, you know, the, the, the trying to keep enough people to, to run a facility like that, keep the maintenance done, the grass cut timing systems, and God knows, you know, air conditioners and everything else, especially a, a Vandermeer where they've got heaters under the track. That's, I'm sure there's quite a bit of maintenance with that. So all of those things just add up to where sometimes the, the great offer makes you throw in the towel and there certainly isn't anything being built to replace it, Luke. That was a very good point. And that's, that's definitely a major issue in terms of what tracks we're losing that nobody's out there replacing them. And specific to the, the Bandemir family, and again, I'm, I'm probably speaking out of turn here because I have zero inside information. I, I, I don't know the Bandemir family. Obviously, they're legends in our sport and have been super involved in, in so many innovations, you know, from track prep to, to facility building, I mean, on down the line, right? They seem like they are very much lifers in this. Uh, and, and I don't doubt for a minute that they have full intentions of buying more property a little bit further out of town and, and rebuilding, you know, uh, some sense of that. To that, I'll say from, a, from for a, a racer and a race fan standpoint, especially those in the Denver area, you better hope that those plans get concrete real quick, just because my 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 personal experience with the handful of of racetrack owners that I've been around when when they close the doors and like there is a there is a period where oh man this sucks you know this I poured my whole life into this but you close the doors and you got a pretty healthy nest egg to sit on from it like there is also a sense of relief just not having to get up and do that every day because we we are a pain in the ass you know, racers, spectators, all of the all of the the masters that you have to serve is what Bill Bader Jr. said. Like getting a breath of fresh air from that 
If there's not already plans in the works, I could absolutely see a scenario where they just wake up and go, man, this is pretty nice. We really want to go back. You know, I mean, you hate to say that from a racer standpoint, but I would absolutely respect that decision from them as well. Another great point, Luke, that's, you know, that uh, that sense of urgency to, to do something else dwindles away. And the longer that time frame lasts, the, the easier it is to just say, you know what, we had our run. And now it's over and, you know, my family's secure for decades and generations and, you know, I'm good. I think we'll just sit back and relax and, and not have to run a racetrack anymore. So get that mentality too. Uh, tough deal. Hate it for the people out there that uh, have, you know, lived at Denver and competed out there for so many, many, many decades and years and, now for your racetrack to be shutting down you know i don't know much about the the racing landscape in a, a state like colorado but i know in western colorado there's some options but i don't think there's a ton of options inside the state line so uh really sad it's sad to, to see about it and hear about it and you know i'm sure there'll be a lot of race cars in that area that uh that's up for sale very soon and that's sad as well yeah, and just that that region as a whole. I mean, one of the the more geographically friendly options for for Denver area racers that wanted to travel was Salt Lake City, and that's another racetrack that closed the doors, you know, a few years back. So it's just to your point, not a lot of options uh, in, in in that region for certain. And and Denver was the is you know as of this moment the pinnacle you know option. So uh, yeah. I hate it for those racers and, and fans, certainly. Um, as we as we flip the, the calendar and look forward briefly, Big Jed, it's safe to say that the, the biggest events on the Sportsman Drag Racing caliber, calendar this coming week are within, what, 100 miles of each other. You've got Spring Fling a lot. You've got the four wide nationals, NHRA in Charlotte. Both of those look like they're going to face some pretty significant weather challenges. I know you said JJ is on the way to Galat. Um, any bold predictions for, for either of those events as we look forward, obviously we'll be talking about them next week here on the sportsman drag racing podcast. Um, not really, uh, given much thought to bold predictions, by the way, the weather forecast has improved greatly. Fantastic. Um, That's good. It news. looks like Friday is, is going to be a challenge, but, uh, they've adjusted the schedule at Galat to where today is the 15,000 warmup. They'll start the 50 granders tomorrow, run another one Thursday. Weather permitting, they'll run one Friday and get out of there. If they don't, they'll get to run it Saturday. So they're going to wrap up still at a, at a decent time and get everybody back home. So that's really good. Uh, very happy for Peter and the gang there to get a better forecast. Um, not really much of a bold prediction for the spring fling a lot, but I would say uh, Kevin Brannon will be a handful. Out of my mouth. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's – not at home, but he's near home. So it's big money on the line. It's a great racetrack and, and definitely Kevin's got great talent and equipment. So I'm going to pick KB to do something big over the, the next few days. And uh, at the Charlotte four wide, um, no real bold predictions there. Um, hopefully their weather is as good as it's looking, turning around there at Galat and, they get all that racing done, but um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say Sherman Adcock will win Super Gas at, <laughs> uh, at Charlotte. Right, that's what a bold prediction. KV and Sherm going out on a limb. <laughs> yeah, really stretching out there. All right, good stuff. I've got a I've got a minor emergency here at home. My my son's baseball gear is locked up in the trailer. So oh. and I got to go unlock it for him. So hard out. Got to get Gary to basketball practice. Shut her down, bro. I'll wrap this thing up in style. <laughs> I'm putting this on you every week, Jeff. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. That does wrap us up. So uh, we got TB Promotions, uh, got the, the 100 grander, uh, along with some 50 granders at Beach Bend next week. Uh, that's a facility that ain't going anywhere. So if you're anywhere around Beach Bend, Bowling Green, you know you got a great facility to race at for a long time to come. So uh, those that are going to get to attend the TV promotions event next week, uh, you're in for a treat. Um, Bowling Green hosting uh, an outside um, promoter coming in with something like this is not really something they do. So I'm super excited for Brian Whitworth and Tyler Bohannon and all of the people that's going to compete at the TV promotions event at Beach Bend next week. Um, just to, going to be a huge crowd. The, the showing and the response was so big for the 100 grand shootout that the guys basically had to take it from 64 to 128. Just so many people wanting in, uh, made it, uh, you know, a bigger race with more round money and a lot of offer back to the racer. So great decision for B-Dub and Tebow and definitely those guys couldn't have picked a better place to go race. So it's going to be very exciting. I'm definitely hoping to be there myself. Um, I've got some challenges with the hot rod, but if I get through all that, I'll be there competing with you guys. So everybody tune in to these races and we'll certainly keep you up to date on what's happening here on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. If um, you, you had some comments about the show, I know we had some folks commenting here. I was trying to keep up with it online. Sorry that, uh, that I wasn't able to to shout you guys out, but we appreciate everybody watching. Um, certainly appreciate the, the listening. If you're not getting to watch, if you're just catching this when, on a normal podcast avenue where you listen to podcasts. So either way, we appreciate your support here, the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed uh, here more and more from people when I go to a racetrack somewhere that, uh, you know, we love the podcast, man. We listen every week and you guys can't imagine what that means to us. It's uh, it's really humbling to think anybody would want to hear just our opinion, you know, not, not an expert opinion by any means. It's just a, a humble opinion by a couple of guys that, that love the sport. So uh, to think people want to listen to that's pretty darn cool. So we, we really appreciate that. Y'all tune in to Glot. Listen to JJ call some laps with Steve Riggins. Really excited for my little guy. Uh, he's not a little guy anymore. We're looking at each other and I'm wearing the same clothes. So he's a big guy like his daddy, but, um, you know, really super excited for JJ. He's, he's living a dream and Greg Pesnell and uh, Casey Pesnell making that dream come true for him and getting him over to the lot and appreciate Peter giving him an opportunity to, to go out there and call some laps. And, um, again, if you got comments to, to say about anything we talked about on the show or stuff we should have talked about, by all means, do it right there on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. Uh, I don't have any shout outs, so I'm going to shout out the hashtag loyal listeners. Shout out everybody that's tuned in, watched the show, and had uh, had some comments online there. We appreciate you guys very much. Shout out to Paige Hamlin, 
for helping us get these things on live and making them happen every week. Uh, we had a little issue last week, but for the most part, we got internet, we can make it happen. And, uh, and shout out to producer Mark that's been with us for a long, long time. Uh, couldn't be on the show tonight, but uh, he's got baseball duties with the little ones and keeps him very busy. But producer Mark's a, a key part of this show and why it's lasted as long as it has. So we love you guys. We appreciate the listeners. Luke and I both are on Twitter. If you like to tweet, he is at Luke Bogacki, B-O-G-A-C-K-I. I am at JP11X. Thank you again for tuning in. Make sure to go out and do some racing without complaining at your local track or wherever you're choosing to race this weekend. Have a blast. Turn on some wind lights. We'll be back, and we can't wait to talk to you real soon. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.